It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 74 of the Night Talker at 1045. Where are we at in society? Is the new Snow White live action film replacing dwarfs with diversity? At 1030, entitled Bicyclists Are Pretty Annoying, as are the dorks who like the Tour de France so much that they're causing major accidents within the race. At 10.15, it is my conversation with Kansas State Athletics Director Gene Taylor. And coming up in seconds, SEC Commish Greg Sankey opens their media days with a federal plea for NIL legislation. I am your host, Trey Elling. Please give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave. And do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. You listened to the last three shows from last week. You know that I did spend some time up in Dallas for Big 12 Media Days last week. Of course, the last Big 12 Media Days for both Texas and Oklahoma. And the Big 12 is the first in a series of Media Days for the Power Five conferences in college football, and the Group of Five as well, for being uh, earnest about that and making sure they get their proper due too. But most of the focus over the next few weeks is going to be on the Big 12, of course, last week, the ACC, the Big Ten, the Pac-12. Will there be a TV deal announced during Pac-12 media days? And just how sad is that going to be? And then, of course, the biggest dog of them all, the future home for the Longhorns and Sooners. That would be SEC Media Days, which did kick off a little bit earlier in Nashville. And of course, as is typically the case with a conference and their media days, it really began with the conference commissioner giving a state of the conference address. And perhaps the most powerful conference commissioner in all of college sports is Greg Sankey. So, of course, when he says things, you really need to pay close attention to what he's saying and what the potential intent might be. And Greg Sankey really is not mincing his words in the state of the conference that he gave a little bit earlier in Nashville. By the way, we need to start out by giving Greg a bit of kudos because he paid tribute to the late, great Mike Leach at the start of his speech-slash-presser today. Of course, Leach died between Mississippi State's final regular season game and their bowl game last year. It was very unexpected and uh, really saddened a lot of people in college football and in sports and beyond, too, because Mike Leach is a, a man of many interests. I'm still bummed by it. Mike is a guy that I became friendly with over the last few years. Had him on the show once a year to talk about a variety of things. Very rarely sports, although we did get into sports too. And Greg Sankey also had that sort of relationship with Mike. So he starts things off today by saying, Last year in Atlanta, one of my backstage discussions with Mike Leach focused on the uselessness of neckties. That concluded with the rhetorical question on why powdered wigs went away, but neckties remain. To honor Mike, I am without a tie today. That is a very fitting tribute 
to Mike Leach and uh, Mike Leach rather, and one that I think that he would have truly appreciated. So as far as what is happening in the SEC and college sports this year, most of the run that Greg Sankey is receiving on sports media, and that's going to include this show, has to do with NIL, the opportunities that it is affording student-athletes, but how this thing is still very much off the rails because everyone is operating on their own set of rules. And Greg Sankey as I think will be the case with most, if not all, conference commissioners who speak over the next few weeks about this. This was the case with Brett Yormark, too, where he talks about working with 80-some-odd member institutions to come up with a solution federally to where we don't have these fractures within individual schools and state laws that are made, and then conference rules, and then bringing it up the rear pun not intended there, you do have the NCAA who supposedly has rules too, but as we talked about on this show, and as I discussed with Brett Yormark last week, a conversation that you'll hear at some point in the near future, well, to enforce rules requires authority, authority requires respect, and nobody respects the NCAA. But Greg Sankey did cover the need for college sports to have some sort of uniform set of rules going forward with regards to NIL. Quote, In many ways, NIL has been a net positive for young people competing in college athletics. But it has also created a series of realities that put the long-term viability of college athletics at risk. And we all know there are stories, some told and many untold, of false promises, empty commitments, NIL agreements unfulfilled, inducements offered but not provided, and other behaviors that rightly cause concern. Continuing, student-athletes want to know their competitors from other states are governed by the same rules. Uniformity will ensure a high school student being recruited by universities across the country knows there is a consistent set of rules guiding their NIL activity. Student-athletes ask for our help in navigating this minefield, and they want protections for themselves, their teammates, and their competitors. So back to the whole idea of leveling the playing field, which, let's be completely honest here, is an ironic concept. You are not working with a level playing field if you are at Alabama versus, I don't know, Kansas. I talked to a student-athlete from Kansas last week. I don't know if this is a conversation that I'll ever air, but he's a linebacker who was repping the Jayhawks. Former walk-on, great kid, zero NIL opportunities to this point think there's a guy on Alabama's roster who's not receiving something? So what are you talking about with leveling the playing field? But I also understand his point too, especially because states like Texas have passed laws that are much friendlier to student athletes. And by the way, the universities in their state than to anybody else saying these, this state law matters more than anything your conference of the NCAA is going to tell you. I think this does all ultimately lead to college football players and maybe men's basketball. I don't think women's basketball is close to this point yet. But college football separating itself from the rest of the athletics department in terms of, at the highest level, these guys, if they go play football at a Texas or an Alabama or an A&M or an Oklahoma 
or just think of the big dogs, those at this highest level, will ultimately become university employees. There's almost no way around that. And that's one of the biggest issues, in my opinion, with the attempt to pass federal legislation right now. So when you say that to people who are arguing for federal legislation, and they know that that also means keeping universities from ever having to consider their student-athletes as employees of the school, they hedge. And part of that hedge is football helps to pay for everything else. That's a potential problem there. That's a potential conflict. But the jig is also up with regards to how much is being brought in, even though it helps you run the rest of your operation throughout the year. Some sports, unfortunately, may suffer as a result, but I don't see any way around that, though folks still argue otherwise. So this is a conversation that's going to have to continue. By the way, uh, one other thing that Greg Sankey mentioned in his State of the Conference address a little bit earlier, Big 12 Media Days, which has bounced around a little bit these last few years, I want to say for the longest time it was in Birmingham, Last year it was in Atlanta, as we just heard from that Mike Leach story. This year it's in Nashville. I'm assuming they're going to continue rotating the host city. But next year, perhaps in honor of Texas and Oklahoma entering the conference, it's going to be in Dallas. Or the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We'll see if it's in Jerry World or someplace else. And how cool that is. For me, selfishly. I know you people don't care, but for me, selfishly, how cool that I'll get to be going to Dallas next year for Big 12 Media Days and SEC Media Days, too. Speaking of Big 12 Media Days, last week I had the chance to speak with Kansas State Athletics Director Gene Taylor. You're going to hear that conversation coming up next. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Last week at Big 12 Media Days in Arlington, I had the pleasure of speaking with a number of different people from around the conference. That included coaches, players, and athletics directors. That includes this next conversation with Kansas State Athletics Director Gene Taylor. Gene, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You and I were just talking off the air about this. This is such a fun event to get to come to each and every year. What do you love about Big 12 Media Days? Well, first of all, it, it's just the excitement of football's just around the corner. Now, I know sometimes coaches don't like to hear that because they want a little bit of a break and July is kind of their time off. But I think just the energy behind it, you know, it's new. Um, you get to celebrate a little bit about last year, at least for us, you know, being the f- former champs. But it's more about what's coming next year. Um, and now with the new four schools in the mix, seeing their excitement about coming to an event like this. Cause it's, a, it's a massive event. There's over 700 media members here. Um, all the head coaches are here, outstanding athletes, you know, some of the top athletes in the conference. Uh, so I, I really enjoy it. And the fact that we're first, uh, you know, the other conferences will follow us. It gives us a lot of, uh, you know, just a lot of promotion on the front, front end of things. 
I agree with that, and it's also interesting to talk with people this year because you not only have folks who have been a part of this conference for a long time now, you have these four new members that is injecting new blood, but there's an enthusiasm that comes along with that as well. There really is, and it's been fun. We've been fortunate enough as athletic directors to have them in the room over the last year or so uh, and help them understand the Big 12. They were non-voting members until July 1st, um, but just seeing their excitement about being a part of the Big 12, being a part of the Power 5 conference, and then coming here today, I know all the ADs from each of the four schools. They're just they're just like little kids in a candy store, and, and that's fun. And I think we sometimes lose sight of that, you know, that we come in and we go, oh, it's media day, and da 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 and, But it's really important. It's important to all of us. Uh, we have to remember that and embrace it, and I love coming because it's, it's just fun to see everybody. We're in such a fascinating moment in time with college sports, to say the least, right? That's maybe underplaying it. For you as somebody who is obviously an athletics director, what do you see as the biggest challenge for you and your level of sport in the next five to ten years? Well, I think the biggest thing for us in a place like K-State, you know, our ability to generate enough revenue to stay competitive. We're one of the smaller revenue-producing budgets in the conference finding ways to do that you know success helps because obviously it turns into more season ticket sales um but we have to be able to work with our donors to help them understand their investment is really important for us to be able to keep good coaches to be able to keep good staff members to you know to renegotiate a contract with like a coach Kleiman and and be able to find the dollars to to pay him what he feels he's deserving what i think he's deserving same name with our basketball coach so that's really the challenge is how do we keep pushing ourselves from a revenue perspective to stay competitive with some of these you know hundred million dollar programs in, in revenue and I think Kansas State over time this obviously goes back to Bill Snyder when Kansas State football was in the doldrums it was literally one of the worst programs in Division one football y'all have done a great job of going out and finding the sorts of guys who seem like they can be in it for the long haul in Manhattan Kansas it's just like you know it's kind of the polar opposite but not everybody is going to make it in a big city it it takes a special type of person to make it in a Manhattan Kansas too it really does and it takes a coaching staff that understands oh, the culture and and you know I we tell people all the time coaches tell people I tell people if we can get into Manhattan Kansas the chances of us signing that kid or that athlete is really good because they a lot of people if they've not been to Manhattan Kansas they have a vision of it that's very very different than reality it's a it's a hidden gym it's a beautiful community it's a great college town and we have absolutely wonderful facilities we have a beautiful football stadium we have a beautiful basketball arena and I think when athletes come there they oh this is and then they meet the coaches so it's all about building a culture to have the athletes understand. We have 15 kids coming back, 15 starters coming back, and a bulk of our team coming back on the football team. That doesn't happen, particularly in today's world of transfer portal, uh, and that says a lot about the coaching staff and that culture that they built there. Yeah, no doubt about that, and it also doesn't have to not oftentimes when you see a team rise up as quickly as you guys did last year and actually win a Big 12 title at the end of the year. So obviously Deuce Vaughn <laughs> is a big loss, I and mean, he was such a special player. He's actually from my neck of the woods, coming from Austin, Texas. But there is so much still good going on on the field. But as you mentioned, the fact that uh, the leaders of these young men are all still back, too, is such a huge deal, and that sustained success. It really does. It kind of builds upon itself, right? Those seniors that were juniors last year, or sometimes now super seniors, um, had such a great time. They didn't quite want to give it up. They wanted to make another run. You know, Deuce, obviously, 
had a long talk with his family and said, you know, I can only do so much. I need to make the next step. And you know what, Deuce? God bless you. You're a great kid. Go get in the NFL, and he's going to be playing in this building that we're in today in the very near future. Um, but, again, it goes back to the coaches understanding that, bringing the right kids in that really appreciate coming in, working a little bit harder, and then rising to this level of success and want to continue to do it again. Yeah, and by the way, Deuce Vaughn, as great of a football player he is, I think he's the closest that we've seen to Barry Sanders since Barry retired. And I know this from speaking with him last year and knowing people who also know him, is a better human being than he is a football player, too. I would tell you that 100%, that Deuce is one of the greatest guys that I've ever been around. Um, he's so humble. Uh, he's so appreciative of everything. You know, we compare him to a Darren Sproles at Kansas State, you know, a very similar type of person. Darren just got in the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. Um, but Deuce is, is that kind of person, just so humble, so gracious, and a really, really good football player, too. No doubt about that. On the subject of NIL, something needs to happen. I know the proverbial guardrails has been thrown around quite a bit over the last year. There are attempts to get something done federally just to uh, give a universal quality to what needs to happen with NIL going forward so we don't have so much insanity in the transfer portal during the offseason and, honestly, during the uh, the season itself too um, it feels like this is all headed towards these student athletes signing longer term contracts with the university which begs the question is it inevitable that college athletes at least maybe in football the biggest revenue generator for most of these schools end up as school employees do you see that as an inevitability I hope not. I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I think our athletes don't want to be employees. There, there comes a lot of different things when you become an employee. Your, your ability to have choices of, you know, all of a sudden now, if they're an employee, I'm the, become the general manager. I'm like, oh, I don't like the way that kid's playing. He's fired. We don't want that. That's not college athletics. Um, I do. Th I'm, I'm very supportive of them being compensated for their name, image, and likeness if it's done the right way. So I think we have to find a way to standardize that put parameters around it, um, make sure that, that we have a third party to say, is a high school kid really worth seven figures? Is his name, image, and likeness? There's professional athletes that have been playing for years that don't get the NIL deals that some of these high school kids are getting to come in and play. That's basically an inducement, and that's wrong. Uh, Deuce Vaughn's a great example. He comes in, creates his name, image, and likeness, and gets compensated for that. That's what that's about. We need to get back to that and find a way to do that. Uh, I think our new president, Charlie Baker, is going to help that. And maybe federally, I think the federal folks are beginning to understand if we go to employees or if we do some of the kind of decisions, it could really impact college athletics in a greater scope than we even imagined. And one of the things is being able to keep our Olympic sports and afford our Olympic sports because the U.S. Olympic Committee relies on those other sports making sure we fill our Olympic teams and those could go away if we end up paying athletes. And if you separate football from the rest of the sports then your ability to finance a lot of those other sports goes away too then, huh? So. We, we finance a lot on football. Uh, matter of fact, the majority of our sports are financed based on the revenue generated by football. All right, last couple questions here. I'm going to have you fill in the blanks for me. The Kansas State football team's 2023 season will be considered a success if blank. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I think it'll be considered a success if we get into a major bowl game. 
to say that we're going to come back to this game is going to be very, very difficult. Obviously, Texas is really good. There's a lot of really good teams. So to say it's only going to be successful if we come back to this championship game would really be unfair. But um, I think we've got a good enough team to go to a pretty good major bowl game at the end of the year. No. I'm not going to turn down coming to this game again. Trust me. <laughs> well, you uh, you want to be uh, in Houston, I guess, for the very final yeah. game of the year, if possible. That would even be even better. That would even be better. Uh, the CFP, you know, maybe let's we can take what TCU did and take it one step further. That's uh, a lofty goal, but I think an achievable goal, too. And the season will be considered a failure if blank. We don't go to bowl game. I think we're a good enough team. We should win enough games that we – I think we should be fighting for a Big 12 championship. Are you going to miss the we own Texas chant? (laughs) You know, I tell you what, Texas is a great brand. Obviously, we're going to miss both Texas and Oklahoma. Long-time members of this conference. Uh, Some great history. I mean, I remember watching Texas as a kid. so we're going to miss them. You know, I love, I love going into Austin and playing at stadium, and there's a lot of history to that. Um, but, you know, obviously it's the changing world of college athletics. We have to move on, and we've lost members before and wish them the best. But one thing, we're going to be competitive, and we're going to make sure that, no offense to Texas or Oklahoma, that uh, we hope somebody's playing in the championship game besides Texas and Oklahoma. But uh, anyway, we'll see. They're a really good football team, and they deserve every accolade they get. That's a very fair statement there. Last question now, Gene. What do you love about Kansas State? I love the people, the culture. Uh, it's it's down to earth. Uh, they they love K State. Our fans just there's a deep pride and passion. I'm sure it's that way at Texas. I'm sure it's way at Oklahoma. But I think because we've always been a, a kind of an underdog and overachiever. Um, I think our fans take great pride in that. Our coaches and our athletes take great pride in that. And that's fun to come to work in every day. He is Kansas State Athletics Director Gene Taylor. Gene, thank you so much for the time today. Best of luck with things going forward. Appreciate it. Uh, Good to be on and uh, good luck to you this year. Appreciate it. Coming up, titled bicyclists are pretty annoying, as are the dorks who like the Tour de France so much, they're causing major accidents. Proving good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Perhaps the most amusing sports headline today comes from ESPN and elsewhere, where Texas and Oklahoma are bringing back the Red River Rivalry name. That's right. This is actually a story on sports sites today. It's how you know that we are fully ensconced in the dog days of summer, even though I guess you could make the argument that Power 5 Conference Media Days helps to negate that just a little bit. We did talk about Greg Sankey and his State of the Conference address in Nashville a little bit earlier with SEC Media Days taking part over the next three days, I believe. But yeah, the 119th Texas-Oklahoma game is going to return with a familiar name and a new sponsor in 2023. It'll be the All-State Red River Rivalry. Now here's where me being a part of this thing too long gets really disappointed because I never had any issues with Red River Shootout. I get it. You're trying to be PC. You're not 
trying to not encourage people getting into shootouts, I guess. Like the Red River shootout. Was that the root of that happening? Gun violence. Hot button issue, I get it. But there was also a tongue-in-cheek nature to shootout. In the Red River variety. But... They did decide to make that game, make that change back in 2005. And they they switched it to the Red River Rivalry to commemorate the 100th meeting between Texas and Oklahoma. Now it was the AT&T Red River Rivalry for several years until that got changed in 2014 to the AT&T Red River Showdown which, by the way, is a whole lot easier to say than Red River Rivalry. I have to say it slowly, just to make sure I don't trip over myself. Red River Showdown? I can say it pretty fast, no problem. And I guess it's fitting, kind of. This is according to the ESPN article. It's fitting that it returns to the classic name. They're calling it the classic name in this article. Is it a classic name? Red River Shootout is the classic name. Red River rivalry is trying too hard, but all state gets to do what it wants. And of course, Joe Castiglione is on board with this, as you would expect him to be. Quote, our annual iconic matchup with the Longhorns each October features more than a century of tradition between our two programs. So it's fitting that we revive the rivalry name. Now, Oklahoma had won three straight Red River shootout games from 2019 to 21, but let's not forget last year, Sooners fans, where the Sooners, playing without starting quarterback Dylan Gabriel, got the ever-living you-know-what kicked out of them by Texas, 49 to nothing. That was Brent Venable's first game as Oklahoma's head coach. First Red River shootout game, that is. The Longhorns lead the overall series 63-50-5. Although, if we just look at what has happened this century, those numbers are drastically different. Here in Austin, we deal with a lot of cyclists who think it's all about them, regardless of whether they're looking in the direction of a car or a pedestrian. Cyclists truly are some of the most self-serving people in this city and on the planet, too. Talk to Andrew McCarthy about this. He just wrote a book about walking the 500-mile Camino through northern Spain with his son. He said the cyclists on the Camino, despite the fact that it is a walking trail, were also huge jerks. So cyclists being huge jerks and think that they are entitled to more than they actually are, it is a universal trait. Now, having said that, I also don't feel good about reading stories from the Tour de France, which is going on right now in France, where fans are causing huge pile-up accidents at this year's race. As a matter of fact... There are a number of riders, including the overall leader, who are calling on fans to behave better. This is after another mass crash marred the 15th stage yesterday. 
from Tour de France leader Jonas Vingegaard. I'm sure that's not how you pronounce the name, but that's how I'm pronouncing it. I'd like to tell the spectators to enjoy the race and be there to cheer for us without standing on the road or pouring beers on us. Please, just enjoy the race. What if them enjoying the race is pouring beer on you? Vingegaard? Vingegaard leads a Slovenian by 10 seconds with the race entering its final week. This incident yesterday involved around two dozen riders and led to appeals from several teams of the tour. From the Kofidis team, please be careful so that the party remains a party for the riders, but also for you. You don't need a cell phone to create mind-blowing memories. This is amid unverified reports that the spectator who caused the crash was taking a selfie. That's right, getting in the middle of the road or getting close enough to the actual course. Maybe they are on the side. I apologize for assuming dead middle. They're hopefully not that dumb. But getting close enough to the track that a rider runs into them, falls over, and then anybody else behind that rider is also going to be in serious trouble. Another team said, please give the riders room to race. According to reports, this latest accident occurred when a spectator on the side of the road inadvertently touched an American rider and it sent him to the ground. Fans gathering on the sides of roads and in villages as riders pass by is part of the tradition and some would call it charm of the tour. But many spectators can take too many risks, including when they run alongside riders in mountain ascents. Organizers also asked fans to pay attention to the riders after the accident, which did not lead to any withdrawals, thankfully. Withdrawal would would have come, of course, from somebody getting hurt so bad that they couldn't continue. Two years ago, a spectator brandishing a large cardboard sign while leaning into the path of oncoming riders led to a massive pileup during the opening stage. And now we have more of the same at this year's Tour de France, too. Look, you cycling dorks who are getting so into the Tour de France that you think it's cool to touch the riders as they're passing by or pour beer on them or have some giant sign that, by the way, is obstructing the view of those around you who are also trying to enjoy this race, as lame as that seems as the words come out of my mouth. Show a little bit of awareness. Show a little bit more self-awareness than your average cyclist does. Your average biker does. You don't want to be the... You don't want to be part of the story in this regard. You just want to be some schmohawk in the background as footage is being picked up of the riders passing by fans on the side of the road. You don't want to be the guy who accidentally jams a drumstick into the spokes of a bicycle, causing the cyclist to do a header and leading to a huge pileup on top of him, too. It's just, a, it's just a bad thing for the sport that you say that you love. Probably should have gotten to this one a little bit earlier in the show, but... I don't know how much this does for the individual, for the team itself... 
Of course, I am selfishly an NFL fan, and I say selfishly because my team was ripped away from me decades ago now when the Houston Oilers moved to Nashville and became the Titans. And so now I root for Longhorns in the league, and I root for guys on my fantasy team. And this guy has been on my fantasy team in the past. As a matter of fact, he cost me a chance at making the playoffs last year. He had a very bad game, but he had one catch for five yards or something. I got knocked out of the playoffs. But the Tennessee Titans, that's right, the former Houston Oilers, have signed free agent wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins or are plan on sci- planning on signing him. Excuse me. They're giving him a two-year, $26 million contract, according to the NFL Network's Ian Rappaport. Deal is worth up to $32 million with incentives. It includes a base salary of $12 million in year one. Hopkins is a five-time All-Pro who had been linked to several teams since the Cardinals released him in May after they were unable to find a trade partner. He made free agent visits with the New England Patriots and the Titans. Hopkins was also rumored to be involved in trade talks with Tennessee on the first night of the 2023 NFL Draft. And according to other reports, the Titans' offer was far superior to that of which the New England Patriots were offering him. And by the way, the Patriots never made sense to me for one specific reason. The fact that Bill O'Brien is the offensive coordinator there, you think DeAndre Hopkins wants to go back and work with, work with Bill O'Brien after the horror stories coming out of Houston? Without Bill O'Brien was treating DeAndre Hopkins and some of the really ugly things that he was saying to his star wide receiver at a time where he was legitimately the best wide receiver in all of football. He wants to go back to that in New England with the rigidity that always that already exists on that staff. Does this help the Titans? Maybe. I don't know what Hopkins has left at this point. The guy has had a hard time staying on the field at times because of injuries. When he's out there, he can be really good, but he's also lost that step now, too. But hopefully for Derrick Henry, Ryan Tannehill, Traylon Burks, and the rest of that Titans offense, it works out for them. All right, coming up, where are we at in society? Is the new Snow White live-action film replacing its dwarfs with diversity? Proving good things do happen on the radio after 10 p.m. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of tonight's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right, it is your nightly look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism, that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are getting it right, perhaps all is not lost. But sadly, tonight is that that night. It very rarely is coming off the weekend, let's be honest. People have had two full days to do really stupid things, three if you want to count the Monday, but there are way too many good examples of uh, how we're getting it wrong to point out the good. And we do start with Disney tonight. Disney has become a lightning rod over the last few years as they make very curious decisions that I feel like do qualify as trying way too hard to be woke to the point that it becomes virtue signaling and they've annoyed a lot of parents in the process. 
Now we have another example of that with a live action remake of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It's a classic animated film. A classic fairy tale story over time. That really is one of those things that helped get Disney on the map. And now they're redoing this story as a live action film. It is slated for release next year with Rachel Zegler serving as the fairy tale heroine. And some people were up in arms about the fact that Rachel is a Hispanic actress. I actually don't care about that. I think that that specific role, we can be fluid with that one. It's like people who are up in arms about the Little Mermaid being black. Like, do you really care that much? It is a completely fictitious story to begin with. We are talking about a mermaid who got to become a human. The trade-off was she lost her magical voice. But people were freaking out about that one. That one doesn't bother me too much. But here's where I have a problem, Disney. There is a picture that has come out from the set of the film. And the seven dwarfs are no longer dwarfs. Apparently, Disney... I'm assuming that there's going to be a name change here because otherwise they'll look really stupid. They're just going to go with Snow White because otherwise it probably needs to be changed to something like Snow White and the seven diverse people. That's because the picture which supposedly shows the Seven Dwarfs is actually showing folks who are regular sized who all fit a different they all check a different box let's put it that way that's right it's uh, different people that have a variety of genders races and sizes in an effort to modernize the 1937 film It's the seven dwarfs, though, Disney. Did you feel too uncomfortable at going seven little people? Dwarf isn't a bad word. The M word, that is the N word for little people. I get you on that one. Not cool to say the M word to little people. But dwarf is not offensive. Understandably, Disney has uh, faced quite a bit of backlash to the point that they insisted that the photo of the non-dwarfs was fake. But here's a problem. They were making threats about uh, those who don't walk back the idea that this photo was from the set of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or whatever the new movie's going to be called. They demanded that the Daily Mail issue a correction, saying, quote, the photos are fake and not from our production. But Disney did 
have to amend their statement not long after sending it to the Daily Mail. Quote, The story has been updated to reflect that. The studio later said the photos were from production, but were not official photos. That's from the Daily Beast. So not official photos, but they were from production. So you're telling me that these are the seven people that are supposed to be dwarfs, most of whom are not? It's very simple, yes or no question, Disney. Are we getting seven dwarfs? Or are we getting seven people who fit a DEI criteria? Because if so, you need to make sure to include that in the title. It needs to go from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to Snow White and the group of seven diverse people. Then again, you know that if you do that, people are going to roll their eyes and move on to the next option. What a very strange place with kids' shows now. Because I feel like a decade ago, I, I am sorry for those of you without kids, which I'm assuming if you're listening to sports radio close to 10 o'clock, close to 11 o'clock at night, excuse me, you're probably uh, pretty alone in this world. No offense, I appreciate you listening, but I also understand the reality of this situation. But for me as the father of an 8 and 6 year old, I am subjected to a lot of these films and I feel like 10 and 15 years ago, they had the formula down with regards to how to make these animated films and appeal to both kids and parents. But at some point in the recent past, they've started leaning too heavily on just how incredible things are visually now, and they've gotten really lazy with the script writings. And any sort of attempt to appeal to both audiences, and the best example that I can point you to is the new Mario Brothers movie. That was a tap-in for the formula that they got right all the way up until a few years ago because so many different generations love the Mario Brothers and there's so many different jokes and fun happy moments that can be spawned off of that but they were a little bit lazy in that film if I have to hear Mama Mia said one more time by one of the Mario Brothers I mean I feel like it was said four or five times at crucial moments it's like you guys are leaning on the Mama Mia bit a little bit too hard can we go another direction please but They're also probably trying to do what the Marvel Universe is now, and that's stretching material out as much as possible. I guess that's great for the long haul, but it sucks for the moment. And another recent example of that I think also qualifies, Elemental. Really cool visuals. There were a few cute moments, but all in all, it was a disappointment. You're talking about the different elements. There's a a sciencey side to things that I think really could have appealed to everyone, help teach kids a little bit, but you're, I don't know. You're just, uh, you're not doing enough in terms of the script writing. Maybe you're leaning a little bit too heavily on AI or perhaps the disgruntled script writers who are now no longer working for you. But they're going to try it again with Snow White and the seven people of different ethnic backgrounds. Good luck with that one, Disney. talk from time to time about another polarizing topic that would be global warming and climate change I will say again what I say anytime this topic comes up on this sports program I am not smart enough to know what is happening with climate change other than to say that there are wackadoos at each 
extreme of this conversation. You're somebody who thinks it's funny to throw trash on the ground. You genuinely suck. And if you are somebody who thinks the world is coming to an end in the next four years, well, you're a bit of a wackadoo. And we have to focus our attention with this final where are we at story on the wackadoo side of things where there is a new movement of women who have decided not to procreate in response to the coming climate breakdown and civilization collapse. They even have a name. Birth Strikers. One such birth striker is Blythe Pepino. Her and her partner Joshua got together two years ago, according to The Guardian, and she felt, quote, this overwhelming urge to create a family with him, she says. I think it was the fifth day after having met him. I said, I've got to meet your parents. He was like, you're mad. Oh, you had no idea, Josh, because now she is firmly ensconced as a birth striker. That's right, people who refuse to have kids until the climate situation gets better. Is there a silver lining here? I mean, are, we, are you thinking what I'm thinking? That if this is a stance that this person is taking, I mean, good for you for having a cause that you believe that much in, but I think we're probably better off without you influencing the life of a little person considering some of the uh, mental illness issues that may be going on here. Is that too harsh? No, I think that's just right. A birth striker? I just admit it. You don't want to have kids. And I completely respect that, by the way. As the father of an eight and six-year-old, there are days that I wish I didn't have kids. I do, and ultimately I'm happy with that decision. But there are days that I do understand those of you who want to remain barren for the rest of your lives. That is it for another Night Talker. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Kansas State Athletics Director Gene Taylor for joining the show. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourself a great rest of the night and sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellings.